Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs> Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. For decades, great entertainers have been a staple of the Vegas experience. It's not happening right now, but will once again, hopefully sooner rather than later. Now, last week you met Felix Cavaliere, the lead singer and songwriter from the Young Rascals. Today we continue that conversation with Felix, a proud member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Also on today's show, you'll hear from your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, and from America's first master sommelier, Eddie Ostrowin. In the second half hour, once again, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rock and Tours. It's just about time for Major League Baseball's playoffs, setting the stage for the World Series. Back in 1962, the New York Mets began their first season of existence, and let's just say it was a difficult start. They finished with 40 wins and 120 losses, ending up in last place, 60 and a half games behind the pennant-winning San Francisco Giants. Today, you'll meet the Mets' very best pitcher from that team, the first pitcher to win a game in Mets history. But first, let's continue our conversation from last week with Felix Cavaliere, the songwriter and lead singer from the great 60s group, The Young Rascals. It's a beautiful You know, when you started out, I mean, you had, a, I, I won't say good luck because it's, it's talent, but you got right off with Joey D and the Starlighters, and people don't realize the song Peppermint Twist was a big hit, and you you went uh, all over Europe with that, I, I understand. Yeah, but I wasn't really part of the Peppermint Twist part of it. I, I, it came after that, and I went over, I went to Europe uh, with him afterwards. You know, and you were back there, too. You guys opened for the Beatles, but I, I not, read... Not, not other way around. Those they guys opened for opened you? For us. That's right, man. They had not been discovered yet. Wow. And you, and you weren't necessarily impressed because... At the time, right? I mean, they hadn't they hadn't put the whole uh, recipe together at that point. Well, let's put it like this. Okay, here I am, a college kid. I was asked to go to Europe because I had taken a summer off, and I was really contemplating not going back to school. And I got this phone call to go to Europe and join this band, which, as, as I said, was known in the United States as Joey D and the Starlight. And I go to, uh, I think it was Germany first, and I walk into this club, and the place is absolutely going bananas, hysterical. Now, obviously, somebody was important there, and it was these guys who we had never heard of called the Beatles. The women, the girls were screaming. I said, okay, what's going on here? These guys on stage, the first guys I really ever saw with long hair, what you could hear basically was uh, a group uh, I thought basically they were a singing group. You know, cause their music was not very strong, but their vocals were very strong. And I frankly was trying to figure out what the heck was going on because uh, when they did American music, they were okay. But when they did their music, you just 
you 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 saw that spark of what was to become genius. No question. You saw something very and heard something very, very uniquely different from what we were doing in the United States or what they were doing, I should say, because I was still a kid. And, 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 and it really influenced me to become uh, to, to do this for a career. In 1964, you're watching them on TV. They're over the Ed Sullivan thing. Did you think, wow, they really took that next step? And, I, you know, you saw that promise and boy, did they fulfill it. Well, I mean, like I say, when you walk into a club, now seriously, I mean, I'm sure like you've been to many places where they play music. Did you ever hear anybody completely screaming the top of their lungs all the time you're in the room? No, never. I've seen it on film, but exactly. never in person. It, 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 you say, well, something big is happening here. So TV, you did the Sullivan Show too. You did a lot of those things. Was that fun in those days, or was that Absolutely. kind of a drudge? Everything was fun. Everything was fun, <laughs> except for getting up at five thirty, six o'clock in the morning to go rehearse for the Ed Sullivan Show six days a week. Yeah, Other he, than that, yes, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, he, yeah. He didn't let you just come in and play, right? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. That was a very, very, very. It, 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 I use the word loosely. It, it was called, it was a tight run ship until he got there. Because, you know, what happened is it's, it, this was live TV. So basically, you worked literally six days a week. Every morning, you rehearsed. On Saturday night, before a whole audience, but un, not televised, you did a complete run of the show. And then on Sunday night, live, at 8 p.m. Eastern, you did the show. And it was all timed, except for him. So he'd go on, he'd see somebody in the audience he knew, he'd start talking, now he's cutting into the time for the next act. Uh. <laughs> it was a madhouse. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, but because it's his show, he did what he wanted to do. He saw somebody he knew in the audience, oh, and in the audience is, you know, well, okay, there's 15, 20 seconds. That's what happened to Jackie Mason. <laughs> right, right. That's a great big when he, when he makes a sign that he really didn't make, but... I guess that that, that affected well, what do you do? You got a comedy act. What do you do? You cut out the chorus. You don't have a chorus. You got a joke. <laughs> you got a line. It's tough. You know. You got a routine. Anyway, but it, it was like like I say. Seriously, I enjoyed every moment of that. More with the lead singer and songwriter of the Young Rascals, Felix Cavaliere, in just a few moments. Time now for a visit with your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. Vic Stupak, I remember getting stuff from him in the mail back when I just turned 21 saying, hey, I'm going to give you $400 to come out and gamble and you can stay there for free. And how do I do it? Because one little percent ends up playing more. He was an incredible guy, though, right? And it, it, that hotel just brings in different kinds of folks. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I don't know how much of that legacy is left. But speaking of King Kong... He actually wanted to have a giant King Kong going up the side of the stratosphere. He was a wacky gambling, like he would bet on anything from what I understand. And uh, I actually think that, that the stratosphere was built on the site of a previous uh, incarnation. Uh, I think it was Bob Stupak's Las Vegas World or something. I, I can't remember the exact name, but just a just a true Vegas character as I start reading about him it's almost too hard to believe that one person lived that kind of life it's kind of like any of these larger than life characters like Benny Binions or Steve Wynn where you're you know it's like they have six lifetimes squeezed into one and they have 
just this crazy belief in Las Vegas as a city. They have a crazy belief in themselves and their ability to create things that people are going to be interested in. And some of them are just wacky. Like, I, th I think Bob Stupak's, uh, is that his name? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it was a space themed. Like, it was like very strange and like, they just, they don't care. I, I guess you call it's it like visionary. Bargain Basement Disney is what it was. Yeah, Bargain Basement <laughs> Disney. Disney's doing okay, so I guess the bargain basement version is still okay, but they're, they're, this town was built on imagination and maybe people not being all that swift because a lot of their ideas, if you thought it through too much, they just they wouldn't have done it. But they did it anyway uh, because they could or because somebody was willing to give them money to do it. Some were huge successes. Some were absolute failures. Some, you know, some of these resorts, big ideas, abandoned, mid-construction. There's a whole, ser you know, a whole history of just bad, failed ideas. But a lot of big, larger-than-life characters. Some of the murderers. Benny Binion's was a convicted murderer, but a beloved like like philanthropist in Las Vegas like where else does that exist that the murderer guy turns into a beloved you know hero of the community thanks Scott don't forget to visit vitalvegas.com every day and follow Scott on Twitter Instagram and Facebook you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi I'm Peter Pavone and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi An adult elephant can weigh up to six tons. The average person, 150 pounds. Ever heard of carfentanil? It's a large wild animal tranquilizer. Illegal drug dealers lace heroin with it. It can kill the average human. If you or a loved one is addicted to opiates, even pain pills, don't wait until it's too late. Call the Detox and Treatment Helpline now. We care. Many of us have been where you are. We'll take you or a loved one away from the drug environment to a place you can clean out safely. Plus, we'll work with your insurance company to make sure you get the treatment you need. And with a Family Medical Leave Act, you're allowed by law to get away for help without telling your employer why. Call now to save a life. 877-927-3380. 877-927-3380. That's 877-927-3380. To re-emerge stronger and safer than ever, ask yourself these crucial questions. Should all restaurants, retailers, and venues have new safety and sanitation procedures in place? As a business owner, how can you assure your valued guests that proper protocols are being followed? How can you give your guests confidence knowing that you've prioritize their health and safety. Introducing VirusSafe Pro, a revolutionary mobile technology software that provides checklists, reminders, and confirmations to help your team perform health and safety measures right on schedule. It allows you to close the information gap in the workplace by giving your employees a dedicated source of credible instructions in a timely manner, right from their mobile devices. Validate compliance with health and wellness standards, provide regular safety and health messaging, and confirm that approved protocols have been performed all in real time and an easy to read dashboard. Tracking and verifying health and safety procedures in your business has never been more important. To learn more about how VirusSafe Pro can help you reopen, visit VirusSafePro.com. 
Now, let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Let's get back to our conversation about the great music of the Young Rascals with their lead singer, Felix Cavalieri. Yeah, I, I've got a question on that, but one thing, I, you got a huge list, you, you were on every show that was on back then. The one that I thought of that you might have had some fun with, and I just wanted to ask you was, this is Tom Jones, because I would imagine oh, he yeah. loved your music. You know what, man? He was a great guy. He is a great guy. He's a really cool guy, man. Yep. Well, one thing that's interesting... You're talking about you really had a, a record was a big deal and you had to sell the record. So, what do you think about today's? Of course, you're still doing this, but records aren't the same thing anymore. Now it's all no. about touring. It, it, you think this is well, easier or harder for well, people doing? Now, this? now it's past tense. <laughs> there is no touring. No, right, that's right. Whole, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, everything has changed uh, as a result of the internet and the uh, Spotify's and the Apple Music's and and all that stuff. You know, it changed considerably from the physical, you know, CD or vinyl in our day and, you know, tape to uh, streaming. Everything's streaming. And uh, basically this, you know, what, what people don't understand is that uh, music is a business. <laughs> what has happened is that the, the, the rules that were made governing our, how should I put, income from uh, writing and publishing. Mm-hmm. We're done in 1941. Yeah, it's crazy, right? <laughs> there's no, there's no streaming. There's no CDs. There's no DVDs. It's it, it was sales. So to get legislation to change, we, meaning the songwriters and publishers, we go down to just like every other American is entitled. We lobby down in Washington. We go down to ASCAP, BMI. We go down. We talk to the senators and the representatives. It's not easy because what we're up against are humongous corporations. What do we got, a million songwriters in the United States of America? We're up against Google, Apple Music, Spotify. You know, good luck. You know, you did a couple of things, kind of the, the, the post-rascal days. You've done all sorts of interesting things, and a couple is collaborating. And I want to ask you, first of all, doing an album with Steve Cropper, and I, well, I mean, he, uh, again, a musician's musician, right? I mean, people love Steve Cropper. Yeah, uh, basically, we came from the same family, so to speak, at Atlantic Records there. You know, he was part of that Atlantic Records with, uh, you know, the Memphis Stacks guys in those days. See, what, what happens here in Nashville is it, it, people, uh, they come here for the purpose of, of wanting to, usually to write, or to, in some cases, be discovered, like the younger people so basically it's easy when you're, you're staying in a pl- you're living in a place and steve has been here for many years and you, you decide to write together oh let's write together well we did that and there was a third party here who who had just moved in very aggressive from new york and he said why don't we go after a record deal we had no idea of going for a record deal we were just writing songs see and he got a record deal for it and it was fun you know like they say but it, it all happens very very kind of like you know intimacy and, and, and instead of like well we're setting up our you know yeah. appointment now of course that's changing because this place has just boomed you know, now what do you have going on right now because I think you, don't you have an album coming out well I, I, I did two things that uh, caught me off guard with this COVID I did a book which is ready to come out and I did an album that's ready to come out now what are we going to do well 
we usually sell a lot of our things on sh- uh, at the shows, uh, right? And, and there's no shows, and we, we, as a matter of fact, we're doing one in October. I'm happy to say, in San Diego area. That's great. Uh, but we haven't done a show since February because there are none. So we're trying to figure out the marketing procedure to see what we're going to do with all this because we really don't know. Well, we're going to look for both of those. It's really, <laughs> we're really kind of excited about it. And of course, out in Las Vegas, we can't wait for you to come back. I know you play like the, you've played the Nugget in some places. You come out semi regularly out to yeah. Vegas. Yeah, we got a good relationship with those people there. That you know, they've been great to us, and you know, we we really miss it. Quite frankly, it was it was again. I use the word fun. I love what I do. So as you can see, man, yeah. I, we miss it like crazy, man. I mean, it was so much fun to go out and see all these people that you know, you know, and uh, basically know you through your music. And uh, it's just a fun thing, you know, and uh, we, we're not doing it anymore. And it's, it's, it's affecting the whole band. Sports have fantasy camps. So does rock have fantasy camps. Right. And I understand you've done some of that stuff. So who comes to that? And, I mean, uh, how realistic do you get with that? I mean, do you have groupies <laughs> there and, <laughs> you know, assorted drinks and what have you? I did the first one. There's a gentleman by the name of David Fishoff who started these rock and roll fantasy camps. It's kind of like the baseball camps, you know. Are you kidding me? You're going to throw me a fastball? Get, get out of town. You know, you're not going to throw me a fastball. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're going to throw me a, a, a lob. And that's how it is. It's people who want to just mingle. It's people who want to ask a lot of questions about your particular instrument or, you know, how do you write or stuff like that. But lately, we've been doing this online, and that's one part of it. But again, I, I use the analogy with baseball. But could you imagine? I mean, hit me a hit me a ground ball, but you know, get out of the way, okay? Because you might kill me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I'd love to come to your rock fantasy camp. Not not to not to. I, w- I would love to write like that, but I can't. And not to play, but be your announcer. I'd love to introduce you guys. <laughs> you well, know, that'd be fun. Yeah, it'd be, it is fun, man. It, it, like I say, and, and Dave has been doing it for many years. He's very successful with it. And now they're jumping. They they jump to online. And I think it's going to be okay. I think it's going to work out. I'm not really sure. Uh, but we had a, a decent turnout for mine. I did uh, one. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do another one, I think, in September. But, again, there's nothing like being there in person, you know. Thanks, Felix. You can find out more about Felix at his website, Felix, C-A-V-A-L-I-E-R-E, music.com. Let's now turn to wine. Some wines absolutely need food. So says America's first master sommelier, Eddie Osterlin. My, my favorite combination is to take goat cheese and compare it with Sauvignon Blanc, but preferably Sauvignon Blanc that has a lot of acidity. And the, wine, the Sauvignon Blancs that have a lot of acidity either come from New Zealand or they come from the Loire Valley in France. They call, they're called Sancerre, S-A-N-C-E-R-R-E. So what am I saying? I'm saying Sauvignon Blanc or Sancerre with goat cheese is magnetic when you taste them in the mouth. Separately, they're not the same. You put them in your mouth and your brain kind of goes, wow, what, what an impression on that, you know? And then you get into, you know, the red wines, whether it's Cabernets or Chiantis or whatever. I mean, Chianti is a wonderful wine from Italy. It's made from a grape called Sangiovese, and it's kind of got a tart cherry-like smell to it with a lot of acidity, and it's got tannins in it, which are bitter. 
So I remember when I was a kid, you know, I went to a red and white tablecloth restaurant and my parents were drinking Chianti, I called it. And uh, I took a sip of it and went, why would anybody drink this? It's, it's, it's acid, it's tart, it's, it's bitter. But I didn't realize as a young guy that this wine is saying, where's some food that I can put in my mouth that'll temper my bitterness, that'll soften my acidity when consumed together? Thanks, Eddie. Remember, all our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Coming up, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. Today's conversation features a member of the 1962 New York Mets, one of the worst teams in baseball history that were also loved by their New York fans. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Vegas, here we go! They were there when history was made. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Inside the 20. Touchdown! A raconteur is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Raconteurs. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! The sports raconteurs dust off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Left court's one in the right, down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rockin' Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half-century or so of American sports. The baseball postseason starts next week, so we decided to discuss baseball today, but not championship baseball. Far from it, actually. Instead, let's take a look back to 1962, when the New York Mets played their inaugural season. The Mets would win a world championship just seven years later, but you never would have thought that back in 1962 as the team struggled to win just 40 games. Their best pitcher, Jay Hook, knows better than anyone just how frustrating it was to see. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets. Have you ever experienced working with a top team and then move to a different team, whether it's business, sports, whatever, that has its problems? Well, nobody can top the story of our guest, Jay Hook, who was a pitcher initially in the 1961 season with the nationally champion Cincinnati Reds and the following season with the 1962 New York Mets. When you learned, Jay, that you were going to be picked up by the Mets, an expansion team, of course, there was no history there. How'd you feel? Were you excited or were you really hate to leave a team that was on top? The World Series finished in 1961, and my wife and I, our kids had gone back with her parents. Uh, Joanne and I were driving back to Northwestern University, because I was doing graduate work there, and, and a little Austin Healy. And we heard over the radio that we'd been sold to the New York Mets. And, and 
to be honest, I didn't at that point. I didn't know much about the New York Mets because uh, it was a new team then in 1962. But then, as I heard who was going to be on that team, I thought, "Wow, you know that that and and actually the '61 season, Steve. I didn't I didn't play a whole lot during the middle to the latter part of the season because I had contracted the mumps of all things." And it really hit me pretty hard. But, uh, you know, by then I knew who was going to be on the New York Mets. I knew Casey Stengel was going to be managing. And I always had a high respect for Casey Stengel. And, and there was Gil Hodges and Duke Snyder and Roger Craig and Charlie Neal and Frank Thomas. And there were a bunch of good players. Now, they were all, a number of them were older. But I thought, you know, this could be a good opportunity. And New York, I knew New York was a great place to play. And and so I, I thought, well, let's roll with it and uh, do the best we can. You know, I was disappointed at first because I, I loved being on the Cincinnati Reds. But this was a new opportunity. So, you know, I, I just rolled with it. <laughs> like you say, on paper, they looked pretty good. And maybe you were hoping something would happen. Like nowadays, the, the the Knights in hockey go in, and the first year they get to the Stanley Cup. Maybe you hit the jackpot. <laughs> that wasn't the case with the Mets, though. <laughs> no, it sure wasn't. It sure wasn't. You know, and in spring training, I was fairly optimistic because these were there were a bunch of guys on that team that had been successful. You know, it wasn't like we were just all rookies, you know, and, and – uh, I didn't expect us to be as bad as we were. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little about that spring training, because you go down there. First of all, Casey Stingle, talk a little about playing for him. You got him in the latter part of his career, but it had to be kind of exciting because this guy knew how to win. Well, he did. You know, and he'd been with the Yankees, I think, 10 years at that point, and they they let him go, I think, because of his age, because he was 70 years old, I think, that, that year. And he, you know, he knew a lot about baseball. I, I wish I'd have I read his biography, and I, I read it maybe uh, two years ago now. But I wish I'd have read it back when when I knew him, because his history was was really unique. Uh, you know, he started like back in 1910 or something, and and had played for a number of clubs and done a lot of things. His wife had been a silent movie star, and and they never had any children. And that was one of the relationships that ended up uh, happening with us, with my wife and I, because we had two kids at that time. And Casey and Edna, if they saw us in a restaurant, they'd come over and take our two kids, and they'd sit with Casey and Edna, and we'd eat alone. But, <laughs> but he, he, you know, he had an interesting perspective, and you know, he he had that Stengelese that he, you know he was known for. And, and I analyzed the Stengelese, and, and really I, what, I, what I analyzed was that he would be talking along on a subject and be thinking about the next subject he was going to talk about. And then before he finished the first subject, he'd jump to the second subject. <laughs> and then he'd realize he didn't finish the first subject, so then he'd go back to that. And so it was, what, what it was was a staggering of different ideas <laughs> over the same conversation. Well, what about the camp? I mean, you came from a camp the year before, that ended up going to the World Series. Now you go to this, it's all these people that haven't played together. Like you say, there's some veterans there. Did the camp start out good where you feel like, hey, you know, maybe we'll be decent? Yeah, I I, I didn't think we were going to be a pennant winner, but I didn't think we were going to be as bad as we, we ended up. You know, but the great thing about baseball is it's a new game every day. I really thought, 
and I felt this in the clubhouse, that even though we lost the game, you know, we weren't defeated. You know, right. and I, I later heard someone say, you know, you're only defeated if you stop doing it. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so that, I think that's one of the great things about baseball is you could still be optimistic even though you've lost today. Well, that's a good attitude, and you needed it that year. So you go to the polo grounds. Now, at this stage of the game, polo grounds, a lot of history. Well, what was that like? Well, it was it was a difficult park. <laughs> it, uh, it certainly was an old park. It was, I think, the oldest park in baseball at that point. But the, it was it had been a polo field, and so it it was a rectangular kind of field, and so the right and left field lines were really very short. But center field was way out there, and and the left center, right center were. So it it was a different kind of park, and if people pulled the ball, they had a good chance of hitting a home run if it was fairly close to the line because it was pretty short. But the rest of it was was quite quite big. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you a quick brief story. We were pitch, we were playing against the Milwaukee Braves, and the bases were loaded. I was pitching. Bases were loaded, and Casey came out, and he used to call me Professor because I was going to college, you know. (laughs) And he said, Professor, pitch him outside and make him hit at the center field. And the next pitch, I threw a low outside fastball. It was about 470 feet to center field. And he hit it about 500 feet to center field for a grand slam home run. About two weeks ago, I got a, I get maybe eight or ten letters a month still from people. That's 58 years ago. And, and, and I still get these letters with baseball cards in them and stuff. And I got this card and I read the letter and the guy said, I'm sorry, I don't have a, I don't have a baseball, one of your baseball cards. He said, I have this Hank Aaron baseball card. <laughs> and, and he said, and you know, would you be kind enough to sign right under Casey Stengel's arm? Well, I turned it over, and I had never seen one of these before. And, and it, it was the home run that he hit off me in the polo grounds, the center field, the grand slam home run. I don't know what, I don't know what number it was, but it said number, whatever it was. Yeah. And, and, and then it described this. Well, the guy, I don't know where he ever found that. We'll be back with former pitcher from the 1962 New York Mets, Jay Hook, in just a moment. You're listening to Sports Rockin' Tours with Stephen Nagy. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. 
Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. Welcome back to Sports Rock and Tours. You are listening to Jay Hook, starting pitcher from the 1962 New York Mets. You know, we talk about the polo grounds, and I remember reading stories about the New York Titans, the football team that played in there, and they tell stories like it was falling apart in the locker room. Was it, was it really bad there? Do you recall? Like It was at the end of its career. <laughs> you know, it, uh, it, it was tired. And, and really, they, they really thought that they were going to have Shea Stadium finished for the second year. But but it didn't happen, and it wasn't until the third year that they that the club got into Shea Stadium. <laughs> Casey Stengel. Later on, I got into industry and I got into a whole bunch of other stuff, and and I've used Casey Stengel as an example in in higher education, in business, in the church, <laughs> because he knew who his customers were, and what he would do, even though it was the locker rooms weren't terrific and his office wasn't terrific. But every game, you know, at that time, there were probably 12 or 13 papers in New York. And, and every one of those papers had a writer. And, and at the end of the game, no matter if we lost or played work terrible or won or whatever, he would call those writers into his office after the game. And, and he would get them a beer or Coke or whatever. And, and he would tell stories. Or, and after half an hour or 45 minutes or whatever they were in there, they had their story written. Well, he knew who his customers were, and the customers were those people that were in the stands every day or the people watching on television or the people that read the newspapers. But the, the news at that time was really the vehicle to get to those people. Yeah. And he made the, the sports writer's job easy. Not easy, but a lot easier than it maybe what really was. By, by doing that, because they always would come out of there and they had their 12 or 13 inches of column you know, written. He knew who his customers were, and you know, I guess in anything, you got to be successful. You better make sure your customers are successful or are happy. Anyway. Well, that makes a lot of sense because as a team that's struggling as much as the '62 Mets did, you you don't want to lose any kind of enthusiasm. And I guess his attitude was, well, let's make it fun so people will just understand that you know, this is growing pains and have fun with it. Yeah, I, I believe that. I believe that, Stephen. And you know, our fans were terrific. I mean, how, how could you be the worst team ever in baseball and still have fans that, you know, would come out every day and make their banners and, and cheer? And, and you know, it, it was a terrific year. I think we drew, even at the Polo Grounds with a terrible, you know, a lo- losing team. I think, if, I can't remember what the, what the attendance for the year was that year, but the Yankees were doing very well. And, and I think our attendance was very close to theirs, if not better. And one of those people that were entertaining, everybody, if you mention the 62 Mets, they think of Marvelous Marv Thornberry, right? What was, he, right. What was he like? I mean, he got fame then, and he got fame later in a Miller Lite beer commercial. But was he as interesting off the field as he was on? Well, I, I'm not sure. I think, I think he, I'm not sure if he came out of the Yankee organization. He might have. Uh, there's a story with Marvelous Marv, too. Uh, one day he came to me and he says, Hook, he says, you're an engineer, aren't you? I said, yeah, I took engineering. He says, well, engineers can print real good, can't they? And I said, well, yeah, I took drafting. You know, I, I could print pretty good. He, he went to his locker and above his locker was his name card. 
and he got pulled it out of the, you know, it's like they were like in a clamp thing up there. He pulled it out. He got me a pen and turned his turned his, his name over on this cardboard sheet, and he said, "Would you print Marvelous Marv?" <laughs> and so I printed Marvelous Marv, and then he took it and he put it back, you know, in the sleeve above his locker, and it said Marvelous Marv. <laughs> and, and that in that game, you know, it, late in the game, he, he must have hit a home run or done something that, you know, done it well. And after the game, all these writers came in, and they're all standing around his locker, and they're seeing that they saw this thing, Marvelous Marv. And the next day, headlines in the paper, Marvelous Marv did this or whatever. And so I had a little part in, in him be, and naming himself Marvelous Marv. Well, that's great. Yeah, and he understood public relations. I want to know what was going on in your mind because you were a winner in college. You were a winner with the Reds. You go there. It isn't you personally, but it, it, it's got to get to you. Were you starting to you know, get frustrated or I was like, oh, what am I doing here? Yeah, that, 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 that was true. <laughs> But you know that's where I was, and and I guess the, you know, you either keep going or you or you get out of there. But but I wanted to keep playing baseball, and uh, uh, but I I think probably probably it has an influence. I I didn't I didn't realize something, Steve, that occurred a couple of years ago, in one of these one of these letters that I would get from people, somebody had analyzed that first year, and they wrote in this letter. That I had, I had lost. I think I lost 19 games that season, and won I think eight, if I remember right. They said that I had lost 13 games by one run. You know, they weren't all two to one games. They might have been five to four or four to three or something. But I thought, you know, if I'd have just won half of those games, <laughs> I'd have had a decent year. Yeah. And and I, I had never, I never realized that. I guess I had never sat down and analyzed the the year or anything. But I didn't realize that out of those 19 losses or whatever it was, that I had lost 13 of them by one run. Here's one date that you'll probably remember. April 23rd, 1962, you guys are 0-9. You're on the mound against the uh, Pirates, who uh, were just a couple of years before world champions. Uh, do you remember that night? Because like, you did everything, as I recall, that night. You even did the batting. Yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember pretty well. You know what? And all of the different interviews I've done over the years, that's the only reason I'm getting 8 or 10 letters a month. <laughs> was that I pitched the first Mets win. You know, it, it was, uh, I think, in the, I, I, I looked it up when somebody, a group, was calling me, and, and I went on the Internet and looked up that game because I couldn't remember who the catcher was. It was Chris Canizero, and I couldn't remember if it was he or one of the other guys. And I, I looked, and they had every batter listed. I mean, they went through all nine innings and said what each person did. I, it was kind of fun to go back. I, I, you know, I knew I had driven in two runs with a base hit, like in the second inning, but I, I didn't realize, you know, all the detail of it. Also, you were the losing pitcher when they lost game number one hundred uh, against the Phillies. <laughs> but you pitched really good that night, right? Ten innings, and you lose three to two. <laughs> wow! Yeah, yeah, that was one of the one-run games. <laughs> oh gosh! And uh, as I recall, somebody telling me that Marv Thornberry fell down trying to make a tag as the winning run was scoring. Wow! What a way to lose, huh? <laughs> You know, I, I don't remember that. <laughs> Sorry to bring that back up. <laughs> you put some things out of your mind. Was the 69 Mets, was that team special to you? Because going what you went through, that was the other side of it. Well, the fun part was was to see them do, do well. 
and and it was it was great to see coming from the '62 when we were the worst team in baseball to '69 when we were the best team in baseball. And a few of the guys were still there. Ed Cranepool was still there, and you know a few of their their big name guys came after I had left. It. You know, I I retired in 1964, and decided I better go to work because we we didn't make much money then. So you know, I wish I'd have been born about 40 or 50 years later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, the, the the 69 Mets, did you have a chance to meet people like Tom Seaver or something, or was it just something you watched from afar? Just it was something like, you know, I was I was into a whole new career, and, and so I watched it a little bit on television, but I, I didn't, I really didn't have an opportunity to go back. I'll tell you a funny story from the year before, though, 1968, the Tigers won, won the pennant for the American League, and my wife and I were living in a suburb of Detroit, and we went down to one of the World Series games. And, and we ran into Casey Stengel at that game. And Casey said, Hook, I understand you got out of baseball. I said, yeah, I did, Casey. I, I uh, tore up my knee trying to take a shortstop out in a double play. He said, how'd you get to first? Casey, uh, when they traded me, said, Jay, he said, you know, we're doing this. We're getting Roy McMillan and uh, whatever on the trade. And he said, my wife's going to kill me when I go home and tell her we traded you because your kids were terrific. <laughs> well, Jay, thank you so much. Really enjoyed spending some time with you today. Uh, we'll have you on again. This was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. <laughs> Steve, thank you. You can hear more with Jay Hook on our expanded podcast available soon on the Vegas Never Sleeps website, which you should go to. Check out the Sports Rock and Tour page. You can hear bonus content from this conversation plus a number of other great sports stories. Follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com.